Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. We were going to talk about Italy today and then something happened in the Supreme Court yesterday. So we're going to talk about that and we're going to talk about Italy and we're going to talk about what connects them, if anything does. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary for the next few months with an unimprovable offer. Get a year's subscription and a limited edition LRB tote bag for just £40 by using the URL lrb.me forward slash birthday. So I'm delighted that Catherine Barnard is back with us for the follow-up. Lucia Rubinelli and Chris Pickett are here too, and we'll get their views on the connection between Italy, Supreme Court, Brexit, everything. So Catherine, we talked about this last week. By the weekend, perhaps it wasn't a total surprise how the judgment went. There were kind of smoke signals coming out. I think a lot of people were surprised it was unanimous. I think I was surprised it was unanimous. Were you surprised? With hindsight, no. It makes a lot of sense it's unanimous for the reason that, one, strength, unity is strength. Two, it avoids anyone from being picked off. There's always been a fear about a repetition of Daily Mail's enemies of the people. And three, it says to the public that you can't say, our oh, Judge X is a known Remainer, Judge Y is a known Labour supporter. It's very difficult to say that all 11 have particular anti-Brexit views and therefore having a unanimous decision sends up considerable force. So I'm going to put the counter-argument just for the sake of it. Given that the judgment was on what were called the fundamentals of democracy, that was a key part of what was in there. If you got 11 people together, you wouldn't get 11 to agree on the fundamentals of democracy. So I can see why, for the reasons you say, unanimity is a kind of strength, but it could also look like a kind of contrivance. And it is striking also in this case, there have been four judgments, two one way, two the other. So there is a division of opinion. But in each case, the judgment was unanimous. So judges have never disagreed within a case. They've only disagreed between courts and hearings. Is it partly because in this case they had the full evidence and indeed they had the full range of arguments on both sides and the government case was just blown out of the water? I mean, would that be the other way to put it? I think it's another way of putting it, but I suspect they really did want unanimous opinion if they could get there. And actually that says a great deal about Lady Hale's chairing of the discussion to try and get all 11 on board with a judgment particularly a judgment of this strength is really quite remarkable it does push against the idea that people say we're going down the american supreme court route because one thing i can guarantee is a supreme court judgment in which the phrase the fundamentals of democracy was used in the judgment would not be unanimous i mean the idea of it would be absurd in the american case so this court is not therefore politicised like that court is. It might be politicised in a different way, but not like that. And I agree, but I, what I, I think what most lawyers, if pushed, would say, what are the fundamentals of democracy? Well, we're told about parliamentary sovereignty and the various permutations of parliamentary sovereignty which are articulated in the judgment. The bit that is slightly new is the emphasis on accountability of the executive to parliament, which has never been articulated in quite that way as a fundamental of democracy. But frankly, it is implicit in 
a system which has such a strong notion of parliamentary sovereignty that if parliament really is sovereign, therefore the other main institution for it to work, the executive must be accountable to somebody and the courts have said it's accountable to parliament and I think that's what's really striking. So how does the High Court judgment that went the other way now stand? Because I was looking back over some of the coverage of that and a phrase that was used quite a lot was those judges were reflecting the orthodoxy. Well, there must now be a new orthodoxy, right? This this is the new orthodoxy. Within a couple of weeks, the orthodoxy has been turned on its head. So I think we have to be slightly careful there because what the High Court said was this matter is not justiciable. They didn't really get involved into the nuts and bolts of the grounds for review because they said it's not justiciable. Although I think they did say, were it to be justiciable we're not sure that we would be able to say that there wasn't a good reason. I mean, it was quite it cautiously was. phrased. But of course, what we've also had is the Scottish court decision where you have no witness statement from the Prime Minister on number 10. And I think this really did play very badly, ultimately, for the government. And this is something that the Supreme Court took very seriously. Because that also was something that was really striking in this judgment. Lady Hale, all of them said... We are saying that we were given no reason, let alone a good reason, we were given no reason. Now, I watched enough of it to see, well, that's not strictly true. They were given reasons. They treated those reasons as completely void. I mean, it's as though they were saying that two hours that you spent telling us your reasons, you might as well have just not been talking at all. Where does that leave the government's case? What does it mean if they were given reasons and they described them as no reasons at all? Well, I think what's interesting, and this is where the Supreme Court is quite subtle and treads a very careful line, because they didn't want to get into motive and they didn't want to look at the Prime Minister's motive for proroguing Parliament. And they also wanted to try and keep the Queen out of it as much as possible. So what they did instead was they focused on the effect of the prorogation. And the effect of the prorogation was that Parliament, the parliamentary committees didn't sit. There was no scrutiny over, for example, Operation Yellowhammer and the consequences of a no-deal Brexit. There would be no um, meeting of the liaison committee where the Prime Minister answers questions. And so they focused on the effect of the prorogation and they contrasted a prorogation with recess, where these things carry on, but with prorogation, everything grinds to a halt. There's one thing which struck me was this idea that Parliament had been prevented from conducting its core business, holding the government to account and embodying, if you like, its role as sovereign. And I was you know, thinking about the judgment and I thought, well, Parliament did have the opportunity to do what I suppose is its core function, which would be to dissolve Parliament and have an election. Or to replace the executive with another executive. That's right. It definitely had the opportunity to do so, and it chose not to exercise that for reasons entirely to do with concerns about Brexit and there being a no-deal Brexit before a general election, and difficulties about installing some sort of caretaker, alternative executive. The rest is the core business, the scrutinising legislation, all these things. They seem to me sort of obviously important, but the idea that Parliament was prevented from doing what it is its core function seems to me a very big leap on the part of the, the Supreme Court. Had Parliament, the opposition parties, been gunning for an election, seeking to dissolve Parliament, seeking to do, and then being thwarted by the prorogation, 
there I think the case would have been much stronger. Or alternatively, um, had a vote of no confidence either been thwarted or following one, Parliament was prorogued. That's right. So there is, that's why I say the fundamentals of democracy, that phrase really stood out for me. And you know, I have some sympathy with what Chris is saying, which is, so I'm saying this not as a lawyer, as someone who studies and politics, this and this is the difference. Yeah. So for a non-lawyer, there are some quite contentious arguments to be had about what is the core function and how it does work. And then it also, in the judgment, it says at this particular time, so it does say this is contextual. We are saying this because a really important decision is coming up on the 31st. So it wasn't nothing to do with Brexit. And yet, once you go down that road, then you can say, well, there are a lot of contingencies at play here. I mean, we saw that in our podcast last week. This is where political scientists come at this from a very different angle from uh, from lawyers. The Supreme Court had to tread a very careful path and they had to be careful not to go into the bigger political background, including having an election. So they looked at the power to prorogue and they looked at whether that power was essentially unlimited or limited. And that's what courts do. They're prepared to look at the limits of the power. By looking at the limits of the power, they say, well, actually, there are limits on this power. You can't use this power power in a totally open-ended way. They looked over the edge and saw the possibility of a prorogation being used by a Prime Minister to suspend Parliament for months on end or to avoid uh, having a vote of no confidence or to avoid having a debate that they don't want to have and said, OK, that power, if it was unlimited, if it can't be subject to any judicial check, could be used for unconstitutional purposes. And clearly this has now set a very clear rule legal rule for future prorogations. No prime minister is going to be able to do what Johnson did. But can we read anything else into it? So there must be a relatively high probability that some big cases are coming back to the courts and ultimately the Supreme Court in the next few weeks, including possibly a legal challenge. If Johnson is still in post and we get closer to the 31st and the Ben Act kicks in, he has to send the letter and he either doesn't or he sends it in a way that's not straightforward. Is there anything that we can read from this judgment and its unanimity to the possibility of how the court might decide on those core Brexit matters? Not least, is it going to be able to hold the unanimity line once we get into the real politics of this? Yeah, pure speculation. But what we do know is there's already a case which has been lodged in the Scottish court using this remedy that is unique to Scottish law to say that the court could, if necessary, send the letter mandated by the Ben Burt Act if the Prime Minister will not do so. The Prime Minister has put some evidence into the Scottish Court, but that evidence is at the moment confidential. But it is sending out a message that the courts will look at some of these issues. What we do know is, I think, this judgment, the Supreme Court judgment of yesterday, makes it very difficult for the government just to prorogue again, with a view to have a prorogation which lasts all the way to the 2nd or the 5th of November. But the government will prorogue for a but Queen's Speech. But they will speech. have to prorogue for a Queen's Speech, but it'll have to be for a matter of days. But a much longer period of prorogation, which is something that has been talked about, I think is now off the table. So again, if this was the US Supreme Court, we would be reading the runes from both the numbers and the wording of the judgment about how this court might decide on other similarly contentious political constitutional matters. So we're at the start of what might be a whole series of contentious judgments and confrontations through the courts. Do we have enough yet to be reading the runes? No, we don't. So so again, that's why unanimity is different from had it been 8374, we would now be saying those four are going to be the ones who will side with the government on the next 
wouldn't we? And we saw some evidence of people talking about, what about Lord Reid? Lord Reid's going to be the next president of the Supreme Court. He's been very cautious about allowing judicial review of what is essentially political matters, and yet he was part of the 11. So they get some cover, both political and legal cover, from being part of the 11. But it doesn't mean that in different factual circumstances, slightly different factual circumstances, they might not break differently. So I'm going to ask a total non-lawyer question here, but if you were on the, the High Court that went the other way, including very, very senior judges, the master of the roles, is it embarrassing? I mean, what, what, how did lawyers, senior judges feel when they get really not just overruled, but steamrolled by their peers. Everyone's human and you don't like being reversed and all judges say that. But equally, all judges get reversed, overturned at some stage. Um, Not in quite such a high profile way. That's true. But on the other hand, what the Supreme Court was presented with was a sort of very orthodox, conservative with a small c approach taken by the High Court, where judges say that political matters are not justiciable. And on the other hand, you've got the Scottish court saying, actually, this is justiciable. And there's been an attempt to stymie the role of parliament. It's an egregious approach to parliament. And therefore, we've got to do something. And so inevitably, there was going to be a winner and a a loser, you know, either the High Court of England, Wales, or the Scottish court were going to be upset at a very basic level and the Supreme Court obviously found um, much much had much more sympathy with the judgments of the Scottish Court. And could those judges say like the rest of us maybe are thinking that the government did a really bad job of presenting its case? Well, of course, the lawyers for the government, their hands were significantly tied by their instructions. Now, that sounds a very legalistic way, but it's true that Lord Keane and the other lawyers for the government could only do what they'd been authorised to do. So by they had own... the Nicky de Costa yeah, document absolutely. and they had to build and, a case out of exactly. it. And, and, but also, that. they couldn't make the undertakings that the Supreme Court really wanted them to make. The one undertaking they did make was that the Prime Minister would respect the upshot of, of this judgment and formally he is going to do so because he's coming back from the States and he will appear in front of Parliament probably today. There was this moment which sort of encapsulated it when Lord Keane was asked, when he said, look, if you leave out recess, which they decided you couldn't, we're only talking about seven days. And he was asked, why seven days? And he said, well, why not 14? Why not one? So no reason. Yeah. I mean, there was a point at which he did say, "We, we we don't need to have a reason. Yeah, and they and, said you do need to have well, a and, and this went to the question of justification. And so what you're seeing is the court will recognise that there may be good reason for prorogation. And in the normal course, prorogation is three, four, five days in preparation for Queen's speech. That's the justification. It's a short prorogation. And it's very unlikely the court would intervene in circumstances such as that. But potentially the bigger the act, then the higher level of justification there needs to be. And the problem is... The Supreme Court weren't given a decent justification for why you needed five weeks, crucially, contextually, five weeks out of the remaining eight weeks before the 31st of October. And they weren't given a good reason why it needs to be five weeks in that crucial window. And so it does go back to your point about context. The thing that really has struck me about this whole affair, and it came out in Lady Hale's deliverance of the judgment yesterday, was how incredibly unprepared the government must have been 
for what was a massively important decision that would inevitably have generated all sorts of litigation. I mean, there was Miller 1, didn't they think there was going to be Miller 2, obviously? And yet it was conducted in such a cavalier fashion because there really was little else for the government lawyers to go on beyond this memorandum. Everyone knows that that's not really the reason. There were other reasons that were driving it, yet nobody was able to talk about them. And in some ways it made the Supreme Court's job pretty easy. I mean, that tells us a lot about this government and also for people who are expecting the government to deliver on Brexit. Well, God help us if those are the people going to do it. I mean, Cummings, when he came in, was this dark genius who was going to do all these things and has just failed to deliver spectacularly. Those people leaked yesterday was Jeffrey Cox's advice, which said this is legal and anyone who says it isn't has got political motivations, which now implies that all 11 of the Supreme Court have political motivations. But the government presumably, I mean, Johnson can presumably say he did act on his Attorney General's advice. Yes, but what is extraordinary is it's now been leaked. And who's leaked it? And there is a sense, going back to Chris's point, that they're throwing anyone out of the balloon in order to try and save their own bacon. It is extraordinary that they should leak this advice and it should appear in the form it did. And of course what the Supreme Court was really careful to avoid is to try and get involved in the highly sensitive political questions that arise. Notably, did Boris Johnson, as the Daily Mirror put it after the Scottish judgment, lie to the Queen. They avoided all of that and they focused very much on constructing a case based on principle and precedent dating back to the 17th century to say, look, we are upholding the Constitution. Now, we're also probably articulating the Constitution. And the one thing I I think everyone who's read the judgment is really impressed by is the clarity and the simplicity of the wording. It's written with a view for the general public to try and understand what our constitution requires, albeit in the context of unique circumstances, namely Brexit. Lucia, before we get on to Italy, do you want to give an Italian perspective on that? You were sitting there very patiently and politely as we talked about our internal difficulties. Yeah, I think the Italian perspective is that this is surprising and not surprising at the same time. It is not surprising because in Italy we are used to have, well, we have a constitutional court and we are used to have it interfere with parliamentary decisions as well as executive decisions. Just to give you an example, in the past, I think, five, six years, the constitutional court struck down two electoral laws passed by parliament, which had the weird effect of making the parliaments that were elected via these laws unconstitutional. So we're quite used to the constitutional court messing up with parliament and how politics works. At the same time, I think it is surprising because the reason why we're used to it in Italy is because we have a written constitution and because the constitutional court is there to uphold the sovereignty of of the people as expressed in the written constitution. So in a sense, it seems to me that the justification for interference from the constitutional court in Italy is stronger because it has a mandate from the people via the constitution that is much clearer than the Supreme Court here. And is the constitutional court in Italy usually unanimous? Is it, I mean, how close is it to something like the US Supreme Court in which people have some sense of who the judges are and some sense of how they might swing on big issues? You know, it's not, the appointments are not political. And constitutional court judges are not public figures, I would say. Some people, like experts in politics, do know who they are and tend to understand their thinking. 
they don't have the same political visibility that Supreme Court. So when they judge, it's like an act of God. It's just this it decision is, has gone up is, to yes. this thing and come down the other way, and that's exactly. the way the and world some, turns. Yeah, yeah, it's something that is unappealable. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hi, it's Catherine, the producer of the podcast, here to tell you quickly about two live events that we're doing this month. The first one is on the 5th of October, that's a Saturday. We're appearing as part of Politics Live, a day-long podcast and politics festival near King's Cross in London. You can buy a ticket for the whole day or just for us. The second one is on the 16th of October in the evening in Cambridge. It's part of the Cambridge Festival of Ideas. David and Helen will be joined by Aisha Hazarika, stand-up comic, Ed Miliband's ex-right-hand woman full of Westminster punditry and gossip. There'll be beer at that one and some limited edition merchandise to celebrate our third birthday that we might just be giving away. All the information on how to buy a ticket will be in the show notes for this episode. Thanks. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So I'm going to try and do the connection between what's going on in the UK and what's going on in Italy. And then we'll talk more about Italy because it's fascinating what's going on in Italy. So you could say at the heart of both countries' political dilemmas, borderline crisis, is the fact that until recently in the Italian case, currently in the UK case, there was a government that had broken down, was not in a position to govern. And yet the opposition were frightened of an election because they thought the populists will win. I'll just call them the populists, Salvini, Johnson. And the polling is quite similar, polling at around 35 plus percent, whereas the opposition is divided between parties that are polling in the high teens. So in this country, Lib Dems and then Labour in the in the 20s. And so there is a desire to either stymie or, in the Italian case, replace the government that's not functioning without an election. In this country, there is not the appetite yet for a government that brings together previous enemies in some kind of new unified coalition. So it's gone through the courts. But in the Italian case, that did happen. So people who hate each other really hate each other, right? Di Maio and Renzi. And I was looking at some of the insults that Griot's tossed out at Renzi over the years, um, including about his private parts. I mean, it's like, it's, it's full on. Uh, it's, it's actually beyond what we've had in this country. Yeah, they went after Prince's family, they went after everything he has. So, yeah. And it's contempt. And now, people who have contempt for each other are in a government. We'll talk about then what happened next. But that seems to me the big difference. There's an underlying similar, similar cause, which is fear of an election because the populists might win. I was trying to think of what would be analogous in the UK case for Di Maio, the five-star leader, and Renzi, the the former PD leader coming together. And it would have to be, I mean, one possibility is Joe Swinson swallowing her pride and forming a government with Jeremy Corbyn. But actually, it's more like Tony Blair swallowing his pride and forming a government with Jeremy Corbyn. Is that, Lucia, is that a reasonable comparison? I think it is, but I think there are a few differences. So first thing, the Italian government was actually working. It's just that Salvini decided that he wanted to call an election because he was polling at 38%. 
But you could then say, well, then it wasn't working because it was a coalition and one coalition partner wanted out. Right, okay. So yes. it wasn't not functioning the way ours, which is it can't actually function. It just, mm-hmm. as with the relationships had broken down. Exactly. And for very strategic reasons, because Salvini wanted to be alone in power. And he explicitly said it, I want all powers in my hands. He said it on a beach in southern Italy. But that hasn't happened in this country yet. <laughs> no. So that's yet. one difference. Yes. <laughs> and then the other difference is that, yeah, you, I mean, you say the way out of the crisis in this country was the Supreme Court. I don't think it's the way out, but it's the route that we've gone down. And it may even change today. We don't know what's going to happen in Parliament today. And it may be the government does collapse. But to this point, the appetite to do what happened in Italy, which is for people who hate each other to form an alternative government, hasn't happened. Right. But I think one key factor that made it happen in Italy was the President of the Republic, which is not the Supreme Court, of course. Uh, It's a political appointment. It's the Queen. Yeah, it's the Queen. It's an elected Queen, right? So it's not the Queen. But... And interestingly, Mattarella was clear, the president of the Republic was clearly acting, having in mind the European Union and what the European Union wanted. So there is some sort of, let's call it external pressure on not going and to to have a new election. And on top of that, the Renzi, who would have lost his power in the Senate and in the lower house. And before I bring Chris in, just to add one extra level of complication, there's also the fact that the prime minister... Conte is a kind of, he's not quite above that absolute vicious battle, but there isn't an analogous figure. So if you do the UK analogy, it'd be like the Queen invites Joe Swinson, Tony Blair, (laughs) David Miliband, and Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell to put their differences behind them. But there isn't a Conte figure as well who can then be, I mean, that would then have to be kind of Ken Clark or it doesn't work. Okay, it's breaking down at this point. The difference is there's no, it's not that there's some sort of magical moment of peace across the kind of partisan divide in Italy that made this new government possible. It's been the result of, I mean, from the outside, impressive levels of political calculation and sort of Machiavellian, you know, scheming on the part of Renzi. He was put in a situation where the leader of the PD wanted to go to elections. Renzi very quickly realised that all of his influence within the parliament, all of his followers in the parliament would disappear. And people have sort of tried to count. It might be around 40 parliamentarians are uh, Renziani, sort of real Renzi supporters. They would have disappeared and he would have lost his influence. So from having been from this position of outside, he realised that by actually pushing for a coalition, he then became absolutely central to the new government. And just to do a little bit of the background there, so the the leader of the payday is Zingaretti. Mm -hmm. Um, He's outside parliament. From outside parliament. But when Salvini said he wanted an election, the payday said, well, let's go for it too, in a sense. Yeah. We've got nothing to lose. And Renzi, who's in Parliament, but not the leader, goes, well, I've got something to lose. And at that point, he pivots and he takes the rest of the party with him. We'll come on to what happens next. But initially, he is able then to block the election by bringing the payday on side with Five Star and pushing out Salvini. Yeah. Renzi controls the parliamentary government the PD in Parliament. So the Parliamentary Party, sorry. So that's again where the British analogy doesn't work unless you count David Miliband in this or someone who's outside (laughs) Parliament, but there isn't. Because that's again a striking feature of the Italian case that party leadership doesn't necessarily go along with parliamentary representation. But from Renzi's perspective, I mean, it's an amazing about turn. On the one hand, he sort of is on the kind of fringes. You know, I'm just this senator from Florence. That's all I am. Uh, you know, I lost this big referendum. I'm on, you know, I, you know, and he said sort of, I will retire. I 
will retire if I lose this referendum. Mm-hmm. So he's on the outside. And then suddenly, with just this change in strategy, this kind of you know parliamentary sort of manoeuvre, he makes himself essential. And it does tell you something about the weakness of the PD leadership, uh, which is that they suddenly found themselves, yes, utterly dependent on Renzi. If Renzi says, well, look, this is what we have to do, they actually couldn't uh, oppose him. So it's a very clever move, I think, for him. And on top of that, he can also now claim that he's the one who kicked Salvini out of government. So he's the one who saved Italy from right-wing populism. That's right. It's Matteo against Matteo. Exactly. That's Renzi's dream. That's right. Matteo's versus Matteo. So we're going to come on to the Macron comparison in a second, because that's clearly lying behind this. So how does it work from Five Star's perspective? So two people had to swallow their pride, or two groups of people had to swallow their pride and their mutual detestation. So five star, it's because what they don't want an election because they're polling badly, badly. at the moment. They're half, and they're just holding on to power. Is that? But like they're five star. It's kind of it's come to this that to be five star is just to do what it takes to hold on to power. So I think there are two things to be said here. One is you know they've always said we are beyond left and right, which makes their political platform extremely flexible. You can be with the far right, and you can be with the left. Now the PD is not extreme left clearly, but the coalition government is PD, Five Star, and another small party that is a splinter of the PD, that's sort of extreme left, or relatively extreme left. So they can actually be with the extreme right and extreme left. But I think that this ties into a long-standing Italian tradition of transformism, trasformismo we call it, which is basically the practice of sitting sitting onto your chair and deciding who to stay with just to stay put on your chair. And the, again, this, is, this has a long tradition in pre-fascist Italy. It doesn't pay off well. It was also typical of Christian democracy. And in a way, the five star who were supposed to break with the tradition and completely change the paradigm of Italian politics are doing exactly what Italian politics is about. Right. So that you put it better than me. That was in a way my question. I thought they were the opposite of that. So what would it take for them to say, oh, no, we can't do this? Well, they've done all they said they couldn't, they wouldn't. Well, Berlusconi, Berlusconi is what's left. So Berlusconi is the step too far. Well, Berlusconi doesn't have the numbers to help them. I, I won't. But would they? The numbers, w- would I they? I mean, well, Renzi, at some point, Renzi was supposed to be Ber- even worse than Berlusconi. So, yes, I think they would. I think there, isn't, there are no limits in the sense that Renzi, I think, was the object of so much vitriol on the part of the Five Star that to then finally form a government with them is the sort of the end of being somehow sort of an anti-establishment movement, at least in practice. I think it's a pretty significant thing. I mean, is the Five Star now dying? If that's the case, and I think it's probably a bit too early to say that, but if we're seeing some sort of decline of the Five Star, then you have to say the Five Star emerged out of a complete crisis in the existing political parties in Italy. And it filled this vacuum. It got up to 30% of the vote. If you're, I don't know, in your late 20s or 30, you've seen the birth of the five stars, the birth of a new kind of politics in Italy that's the only thing that really gives you something to vote for. And then you see that it's essentially doing deals with people like like Renzi. Where do you go? Where do you go next? I think there is an option which could come from inside the five star, which is the Batista. So the other possible leader. At some point, the five star had to decide who their leader would be. And they opted for Di Maio. The other option was Di Batista. And he's He's much further to the left. He's closer to movement politics. And he's also much closer in style, much more similar in style to Salvini. So I've read somewhere he's the only other Italian politician who goes on the telly wearing a hoodie. And on the beach? And on the beach. 
Again, he's much more on the left. His style of politics is much more populist than Di Maio, who looks like an institutionalist by now. So my bet would be that by the next election, he's going to be their leader and he's going to re- reshape the party as a movement party, as sort of the left-wing version of the Le- uh, Lega. I think Renzi is also hoping that's going to be the case yeah. because then he then just he carves the out the centre ground. So this is the other thing that's happened. So Renzi has steered the payday into this coalition and then he's broken away from them yes. and he's going to form his own party. I think it's got a name now, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, Italia Viva. Italia Viva. Who? <laughs> what a wonderful name. And this is Macronism, right? In the same way, Macron breaks away from the socialist, forms his own movement, his own personal movement, and by luck and by skill, cleans up. So Renzi, I think... Italia Viva, Viva Italia? Italia Viva. Italia Viva is polling at 5% or something. Yeah. Uh, so how do you get from there to being Macron? To be honest, between 5 and 10%, if you accept that the, the dominant fact of Italian politics at present, this is what we've seen in Spain as well, is fragmentation. The idea that you can build a majority out of the existing electoral landscape in Italy, I think, is many people, including Renzi, are giving up on this. You can't. He tried, he couldn't. So if it's fragmentation then you become, you know, if you get between 5 and 10%, you're the sort of kingmaker. You know, you're the one who can really call the shots between slightly bigger groups who cannot form a majority on, on their own. And I guess that Renzi's bet is that Berlusconi is now turning 83. He's very old. He doesn't have anybody who seems to be able to have the charismatic leadership he used to have. No, his face doesn't move at all anymore. no. <laughs> His hair keeps on growing, though. So I guess his bet is that he's going to get those votes. At the moment, this is like 9%, 10%, plus his 5%. That could be in between 10 and 15%. And that's going to make him the kingmaker, for sure. On one fundamental level, he can't be Macron. We talk about this a lot. Electoral systems really matter. So you you say Renzi's dream is Matteo versus Matteo. And we'll come on to Salvini in a minute, because he hasn't gone away. But the French presidential system, it's a presidential system and it's two-tier. So there's fragmentation in France too, we know it. And yet the way the system works is once you've got out of the fragmentary round into the final two, you can clean up. You know, so the, the dream for Renzi would presumably be him versus Salvini and Salvini probably does peak at about 40% and then maybe he could pull. But you, you, you're not going to get there. So he's, like you say, so Macron is the king, he's not the kingmaker. But I think Renzi is kind of astute. I mean, he for a long time was pushing for reforms of the electoral system that would essentially edge it into majoritarianism. Yeah, and which is including the of, referendum. Was that well, partly the, what the, the referendum... The referendum wasn't a series of constitutional reforms that would have worked with a majoritarian system, like a French system, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the, the electoral systems that the constitutional court struck down. So now Renzi, in a sort of, uh, I mean, this is typical of him, a complete U-turn, he's now thinking a proportional system would be better. Of course. <laughs> of course. So then him as the kind of between 5 and 10%, he plays a crucial role. And I wouldn't, you know, put it past him to brazenly call and really push for this. So that's one thing is that it could be that with a proportional system, he could play this pivotal role, even though he's got very small figures. You know, if you think that the five-star sort of declines. It doesn't disappear at all, but it declines way below the 30%. I think, Lucia, you're totally right. Where are Berlusconi's sort of core voters going to go? Many will not vote for Salvini, so they will gravitate towards the centre. Renzi said very clearly his new party is appealing to disenchanted Pele voters. He wants to bring them back into the fold, all of them. So he's got this you know, central space. The difficulty, I think, for Renzi is that Macron was new. 
You know, whatever you say about him, he was the new kid on the block. Well, in that people didn't know him when he was part of the establishment. Well, that's right. Rather, he wasn't the leader, he was just the finance minister. Yeah, but as a presidential candidate, he was outside these main parties. You know, he managed to craft that pretty successfully. Renzi, when you see the stuff that he's trying to do to present himself as that, it's painful because it's so obviously not true he's been around for a long time he said he was going to retire he's come back I mean he incarnates the political casta in Italy yet he's now presenting himself as the Macron figure I mean it's worth watching on TV some of his efforts that kind of going jogging with the kind of kids oh, we'll, we'll tweet all that his Brazilian his Brazilian sort of football shirt I mean it's just so it's the hoodies versus the football shirt so another I'm going to do another strained analogy with the UK there's got to be an election at some point. I mean, Helen often says that the Italian system is testing to the limits whether you can keep putting off elections. The difference for now, it probably may change, but the gamble that's been taken is that Salvini is going to fight this election from the outside, so he's not going to be in power. But of course, he can claim he was forced out, he was pushed out. Part of his pitch can be me against the establishment, the people against parliament, because, look, I'm your hero, and they kick me out. I mean, leaving aside the fact that he engineered it by wanting an election. In the UK case, for now, and again, it may even change by the time this podcast goes out, Johnson is still in, and he's being left in the phrase that was used yesterday to twist in the wind. So the hope that when the election comes, they may well not have turfed him out. He may have had to resign by then, but they may well not. And it's this very, very weak government, so it's harder for him to claim to be the outsider. It is possible in the UK case that Johnson will make the Salvini calculation. He's got a better chance to resign and say, look, they kicked me out. I'm here for you. But So there are gambles both ways. But there must also be a fear that Salvini is going to be pretty well placed as the outsider. I mean, that what has happened in the Italian case, not here, is that he can say, look, I really am the outsider because they won't let me govern. Yes, I think I think he definitely will play that card. And I think that Renzi's line of saying, look, I've saved Italy from right-wing populism is just very weak. And it's weak because when elections will take place, and that might be actually sooner than the three years that's supposed to be the... when elections are supposed to actually take place, Salvini will have been out of power for a very long time. Italy's structural problems will not have been solved and he will cash in all of that. And there may be a recession. I mean, I think we haven't, even with the Brexit case, we haven't talked enough about the fundamentals of politics don't change a lot. When you get to a general election, these aren't don't tend to be single issue parliament versus the people constitutional votes. These are often driven by underlying factors, including economic factors. You would not want to be fighting an election against Salvini from the government perspective in a recession in Italy. But you know, it gets worse than that. Lucia was mentioning about the external constraint. The reason why Mattarella was keen to have a government in place and not go to elections is because under pressure from the, the European institutions, Italy introduced into its constitution an obligation to balance the budget, the budgetary rule, which then kicks in at the end of this year. And if if the government does not pass a budget that meets with this rule, there will be this, I think it's VAT, or there's yeah. a dramatic tax hike that's introduced in order to achieve the same thing. So they want to avoid that, but it means that this government will inescapably be associated with a really tough set of cuts in order to meet this external constraint. Salvini, if you ask me, I mean, yes, he would have probably be happy to go for early elections because he thought he could capitalise on it. If there are not going to be elections straight away, fine with him. You know, he sits out this whole difficult six months and then uh, he's... And I think he's very happy not to be involved in drafting the budget. Absolutely. Yeah. So then how does the Italian relationship to the EU factor into this? And this also connects to Brexit, right? So Salvini has said some pretty tough things over the years about the EU and 
Italy's need to get out. But the thought is that he's never going to follow through on that. Not least because, and again, I don't know how much this is true, it's almost a sort of conventional wisdom that the Brexit case is showing other European countries that it's really not, and this is not without even the complication of the euro, it's just don't go down that road, that way madness lies. But what is the perspective of the euro sceptics in Italy of the lessons that have been learned from Brexit, if any, or does it just seem to be such a unique case that there are no lessons? I think it does look like a unique case, mostly because the, the euro is not involved, right? So we know, uh, euro sceptics in Italy would know that in Italy it would be different because of the eurozone. But I still think that Eurosceptics tend to look at what's going on with, with Brexit as a lesson of, actually, we should get out as soon as possible. That's interesting. I mean, I mentioned that before. We had a little jokey conversation about it. someone who told me that his Italian in-laws were just saying to Br- Britain, you, you go for it. Like, you, we, we need someone to really test this because we're all entrapped in this. I think the the danger that the new government or the risk that they're running is that they are pitching themselves as this pro-European government. And Prodi's been sort of, you know, weighing in former mm-hmm. prime minister, European commissioners, deeply involved in Italy's entry into the, the single currency. He's been sort of pitching this as, you know, a European government. And the first thing that the, the new government does is it sends Gentiloni, the former PM, the caretaker PM, to Brussels as a commissioner for economic affairs. So there's this idea that Italy is going to regain some influence by committing itself to the EU and being a better EU mm-hmm. citizen, if you like. From Salvini's perspective, or from somebody outside, or a Eurosceptic's perspective, that's kind of interesting because the current government is basically associating itself with the EU and the EU institutions. And if things like enforcing a budgetary obligation on an already struggling economy really kick in, then again, this adds weight to the Eurosceptic critique, I think. And is there any case for Renzi not being Macron, but forming an alliance with Macron, which is broadly anti-German, that there, there is at least some mileage. So there's Europe and there's Europe, and within Europe there are the deep structural tensions, including the north-south tensions, and that Salvini just doesn't want to play, but a politician who does want to play, but is also willing to take a more reforming side against... We've had this argument, we talked to Adam Tews about it, and I know it's more complicated than this, but there, is there at least an Italian-French anti-German alliance that could be formed by these similar-ish politicians? Yes, but not just Renzi. Conte, as soon as he was re-elected as prime minister of this new government, he went to Macron. Because Macron had been fighting with Salvini in all sorts of of ways. ways. Uh, So they clearly don't like each other. And again, Conte wanted to regain credibility as actually as the main opponent of Salvini by going to Macron as his first visit, official visit, and draft a programme or agree on how to reinvent Europe. So there definitely is a realignment with France there. And then, interestingly, at the same time, as soon as this new government was sworn in, the European Union started to concede on the migration crisis. So they started to say, well, actually, we might take some migrants, especially those who arrive in Italian ports. You know, they can be redistributed and some boats can actually arrive in Marseille or in Spain. So... There are clear signals on the side of the EU that, yes, we have heard Salvini. We understand that this is an issue. We are going to deal with it, but we're going to do it with the new government so that Salvini cannot claim that as his success. It all hangs on what the quid pro quo would be with other EU countries. You know, if Italy sort of manoeuvres itself 
to be closer to somebody like Macron. What is Macron going to give the Italians? Mm. I don't think he's going to give them very much. Maybe letting a few sort of boats arrive at a French port, possibly. Is he going to give anything on, on the economic questions? Is there really a sort of a common purpose there between Italy and, and France? I don't really see it. So there'll be a lot of talk about a new European project where the Italians and the French are side by side. But I don't think it's really going to be enough for Italy to to be able to see off the Euroscepticism of Salvini. One last UK comparison, also a bit strained, but we've had this conversation which covered Brexit and Italy and Euroscepticism. We haven't mentioned Farage. There is another figure in British politics who is the outsider, who is closer to Salvini, and that's Nigel Farage. And we shouldn't forget when our election comes, there's that added complication. Johnson is not obviously the Salvini figure. And people, I think, in the last week, there's been a bit of coverage today saying, in this chaos, do not forget, just because the Brexit party were going down in the polls, there's a poll this morning, they've shot back up. Do not forget, in British politics, the key player could still be Nigel Farage. And that's fragmentation. I think the British electoral landscape is also facing that sort of fragmentation where somebody like Farage can have play a more decisive role. The two main parties, looking at any of the polls, it's just unlikely that they're going to come out with a big majority. We're going to have minority governments or hung parliaments. Italy and Britain are not so different in that respect. Although, again, electoral systems matter because you can get a big majority in Britain on 35%, which Salvini gets to 35%. He's still got a former coalition. Johnson gets to 35% there's a pretty good chance that he's got a Blair-style majority. We'll see. Welcome to Italy. We're recording this on Wednesday morning. Parliament will be sitting again within about an hour and a half of me looking at my clock. We don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to be recording a conversation with Helen a little later in this week when a bit of the dust has settled and no doubt a whole new set of dust has been kicked up. Try and reflect on what's going on. We're also going to be recording an interview this week with Ian McEwan about his new anti-Brexit novella. And we've got a new short film out on YouTube, which is also, I think, quite topical. Its title is Who Will Be Labour's Next Leader? Go to YouTube, search for Talking Politics. It'll be there. Oh, and Donald Trump is about to be impeached. So please keep listening. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Brazing, brazing so we're going to do things. So you know, Ian McEwan has written a little novella. Yes, I so read we're, it yet. we're going to interview him tomorrow. Oh, so I read it yesterday, but it ends with so it's it's Boris Johnson. Yeah, it's metamorphosis. Metaphor- so a, Boris a Johnson is a cockroach yeah. who's become a human, and then it turns out all the cabinet are. And then at the end, they turn back into cockroaches, and they try and escape. And then one of them gets run over, and they eat that one, and that's Gove. <laughs> 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.